First, corporations became people. Now people are becoming businesses. That's the logic of the marketplace applied to employment. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Get a Job by the Silhouettes. Tonight, the third episode in our series, The Way of Neoliberalism, Selling Me, Incorporated. In our last two episodes, we spoke with Wendy Brown and Philip Murawski to get a sense of where neoliberal ideas come from and how they've crept into how we imagine democracy and politics. Tonight we move away from the abstract to take a look at neoliberalism's transformation of a concrete subject that affects all our lives, work. Ilana Gershon, IU Associate Professor of Anthropology, is our guest. She has a forthcoming book of anti-advice for job seekers, down and out in the new economy, how people find or don't find work today. In it, she distills her interviews with job seekers, recruitment counselors, and other cogs in the new neoliberal employment market, where now even white-collar work is temporary, to demonstrate a change in the metaphor of work, from labor as a rental contract to that of the human as a business of one. In today's economy, you can't just be an employee looking to get hired. You have to market yourself as a business, one that can help another business achieve its goals. Job seekers are told to network through social media, build and maintain a consistent personal brand, and always be on the lookout for a better gig to jump to. But in a technologically driven, market-dominated world, where everyone lives in a metaphor of being their own little business, and we're supposedly freed from having a boss, what is actually gained? And more importantly, what are we losing in the process? Ilana Gershon on Selling Me Incorporated on tonight's Interchange. Uh, what I thought was interesting about this is that it, it's more specific, right? Yes. In, in a lot of ways, we're trying to look at the tools uh, that, are, that people are using and how these tools are informing the way we organize ourselves and think about ourselves and think about work and think about breaking up, think about love. Think, you know, these right. things are fascinating because the tools seem to inform the way we think. Right. No, I mean, I think... Now that we're being asked to constantly experience and think in a neoliberal way, what are the problems that come up for people? What are the conundrums that people have as they're trying to figure it out? And so I'm trying to kind of think about neoliberalism very much as a lived experience. Mm. Once you lay out this logic, what is it like to live with the logic? There's a real um, sense that uh, there's a neutralization of understanding what people can or can't be, that there's a standardization, a normalization, yes. a flattening out, you know, there's that I'm not sure what kind of image or what kind of culture we're going to see uh, in, in if we look at work in this in this country now, and maybe in all neoliberal sort of cu cultures. So it's interesting that uh, you could you could create a book that that allowed you to, to see the differences in cultures through work. Um, clearly, this this would do the same, what's work like here, but um, 
this is a specific book in a specific register in a specific work environment too in some sense right it's primarily white collar yes um so primarily uh, and you and the tools used are primarily white collar tools there are some uh, variabilities there but primarily you're looking at the linkedin world let's talk about the metaphor primarily that that you worked with or you're you're pro- proposing a shift in how people view themselves as workers and maybe how how the culture itself organizes the idea of work, how that idea has even been thrown or given to us in some sense. So you, tell us about those two metaphors. One, you give a little historical background of the where we've come from right. and where we're moving into at this point. Well, let me, let me talk about why I ended up wanting to turn to metaphors first to kind of link it into this larger discussion of neoliberalism. Because what my book, in my book, I really try very hard never to use the word neoliberalism. Did you? I don't remember. It's in the bibliography oh, okay, when I'm citing okay. other people. But I didn't, I, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see it anywhere. Okay. I, I really try not to because when I was explaining my, my project and what I was trying to understand to people who I was interviewing um, and who were in the process of trying to get these jobs, I would say neoliberalism and their eyes would glaze over. And I thought, you know, I'm really writing a book that is as accessible as I can make it. And I think neoliberalism is a term that for at least the audience I was hoping to reach might not make it the book as accessible. They mm. might, it might immediately turn them off. But what I wanted to do was th- I, as an academic, I'm surrounded by people talking about neoliberalism. And for a while I was in a situation where Every title of every talk that I heard had the word neoliberalism in it. And I began to wonder what exactly is new about this contemporary form of capitalism. Can we just start saying this is capitalism and just in a slightly new way? Or is there something really distinctive and new about it? Mm. And I began to read people like Wendy Brown and Phil Morofsky to try to un to try to understand how to make this as specific as possible to think, to do justice also to the fact that when I was talking to people about the hiring ritual and what it was like for them to be hired, they would keep saying to me, but everything has changed. And so I began to think, well, actually, what's really changed is the metaphor by which people understand themselves in the workplace, that before people thought of themselves as owning themselves as though they were property so that they would metaphorically rent themselves from nine to five to an employer, and then they would get themselves back at the end. And so there was nothing about always being on or always being tethered to work through email or through your phone. You really had a clear boundary. And as the, me- as the metaphor began to shift, as people began to think more and more about bringing a marketplace logic into all parts of their lives, they began, people have begun to think of themselves as though they are a business, mm. as though they're a bundle of skills and assets and relationships and qualities and experience that they have to consciously manage. Mm-hmm. But they're also constantly enhancing these skills and constantly enhancing these networks. And LinkedIn is a tool that encourages you to constantly imagine yourself as enhancing right. your network work. And so that is a very different way of thinking about what work is and also what it means to choose a job, to get hired mm-hmm. by f- for a job. You begin to think that you are in a temporary contract, that there isn't the same commitments to stable jobs for long periods of time. And company loyalty really seems to go out the window yeah. as far as mm-hmm. I can tell. And what 
I felt more than anything is that people weren't valuing, the, the organization wasn't valuing people as repositories of knowledge. Right. So a lot of this was happening in the context of reorganization and mergers mm -hmm. in which in the process of completely redesigning the company, they weren't paying attention to the people who knew how to get things done. Right. And that there's a value to having longstanding relationships within the company in just terms of understanding who, how processes work, who you can rely on to do certain kinds of work and who you can rely on to do other kinds of work, right. the kind of what are the strengths and weaknesses that we know implicitly about people are never able to kind of openly <laughs> articulate right. in a job interview. And that that was getting neglected right. and forgotten in the process of seeing people just as business assets. Right. It's interesting how much the book is an advice book. I, you and I talked about the the title you had originally planned for the book, which was, I think, Getting a Job in a Digital Age, and that it was an anti-advice book. And... Um, it does do a nice job of trying to see all the things that we're being asked to do. Um, but what's anti about it? It seemed, it seemed like it had advice in it. I hope not. <laughs> so what I was really struck by was that when you're a job seeker, you are surrounded by advice. Mm -hmm. You're surrounded mm -hmm. by good advice. Mm -hmm. You're surrounded by very good advice. And sometimes you're surrounded by downright awful advice. Gotcha. And the problem that people face is not being able to have the tools for understanding whether advice is good advice or bad advice. Sure, sure. And so what I wanted to do with this book in part was to say, here's some things that anthropologists have to offer that allow you to evaluate this advice mm -hmm. and that allow you to think about the fact that this advice is often too standardized. Mm -hmm. And so it's not advice that fits your particular situation or the particular context that you're trying to enter into, like mm -hmm. how that particular workplace organizes right. its hiring. Right. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's actually walk through a little bit of what we have to do now or what you think people are being told to do. In a sense, you're, you give anti-advice by saying this is there's a lot of advice out there, and often that advice is not going to be appropriate to what you need to do to get a job or to be to fit into a particular place. You talk, I think you start out talking about branding in particular. Branding is the, I guess, the biggest buzzword that we've had for a while. We've been branding ourselves for a long time, it seems like, but we're still working on it. What does branding mean? Branding is all over the place. You have to now brand yourself, but you say that it's not often a thing that any hiring managers seem to care about. Is that? That's right. I was really struck by the fact that there, the people who were looking for jobs were being told a very specific set of techniques that they needed to do in order to get branded. They needed to come up with three or four words that reflected their authentic self. And then they needed to make sure that their online presence Everything they did online spoke to those three or four words, and hopefully everything they did offline also was kind of coherent with those three or four right. words. Now, I found the idea, I, I, I have to admit, I find the idea that you have an authentic self and that you're not trying to get along with people in the, in the ways in which they require for, like, that you behave differently in a bar than you're going to behave in an office space than you're going to behave if you are giving a presentation at a Rotary Club. The idea that there was actually something that you had to work on to be fundamentally consistent really surprised me because mm. I have to admit the people I find most unpleasant in my life are the people who are the most consistent, <laughs> who don't change in response to the audiences that they're dealing with. That's okay. And 
So I was struck by how strong this advice, uh, this advice was the same advice that I was hearing in every single branding workshop that I attended. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, when I interviewed recruiters, when I interviewed hiring managers, or when I interviewed people in HR, no one seemed to care about these kinds of techniques. Mm -hmm. Now, since I wrote the book, I have, I did have an interview with, um, a, a, a woman who was really living on the poverty line, and mm. I was telling her about personal branding, and she said, oh, you know, that came up for me in an interview recently where someone asked me for three or four words to describe myself, and I thought they were crazy. And so I said, well, I'm a woman of integrity, I'm a woman of character, and I'm a woman of color. And she said, yeah, that went down like a lead balloon. <laughs> it seems pretty good to me. It seems fantastic to me. Especially if she said it like me. that, right? I, I think she really did. <laughs> right. Nice. <laughs> I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Tonight, our guest is Ilana Gershon, IU Associate Professor of Anthropology and author of Down and Out in the New Economy, part three of our series on neoliberalism. <laughs> Well, uh, branding is a strange thing, and I think you, uh, you again, try to draw some parallel, or I guess you give us a little bit of history of, of branding in the, the object context, right? So products become branded. It was an interesting bit in the book about, uh, you know, how we shift from buying things at the local, in your local environment, your local grocer, your local farmer, you would actually know people and buy products from them by, you buy from a person you know, and you, you trust that person, and and so when things become mass manufactured, you lose that personal relationship. And the idea with branding, product branding, was to create that personal relationship with the brand. Right. So, uh, and you mentioned a couple names, uh, Mr. Clean. Uh, yes, uh, Aunt Jemima. Aunt Jemima. So that shift is an important one, and it's an interesting one in this context too, right? Uh, so how how branding yourself you do a nice job of trying to lay out, you know, how uh, how the object is branded right. versus the subject branding. It's right. yeah, it's a confusing space to kind of talk about. Well, what I was trying to do was point out that when you give personality to objects, it's a very different thing when you're trying than when you're trying to show what a person's personality is from the beginning. Mm. Like the techniques for giving an object, a personality, shouldn't be the same techniques for giving a person a personality. A mm. person, you don't have to discover a personality for a person in the same way. Right. And yet people are really insisting on using the same techniques, mm. which means that you end up coming up with exercises like trying to figure out the three or four words that describe your authentic self. Right. There's always a general pool of words that people use. Yes. And, and so you're always the same as everybody else, no matter what, which words you pull out. You're, you're the same as someone else who's pulled out those few other words also. It's, again, a part of that, that um, uh, a flattening out of, of who people are. Uh, but part of this, too, is how, how the tools we're using kind of make those things possible also or promote how we look at ourselves that way. So Facebook right. in particular, perhaps, uh, there's a way in which you cultivate or curate a self on Facebook. Um, and that, that has, I think, created you know, how we try to imagine that self going out into the world, right? I don't know how it works at work. There's a real distinction in here. You don't think of your Facebook self as your work self. Uh, and LinkedIn has proven to be that work self space. And there are very different things, Facebook and LinkedIn, right? 
I think that that's part of the problem that people have is that they're being told when they're told to brand themselves that they need to be consistent across every platform that they're using mm. online. But in fact, the demands of LinkedIn is actually a very different set of demands. You have a very different audience than you do in Facebook. Mm -hmm. I think people aren't using Facebook for work purposes as well these days. I mean, it depends on what kind of job you're in. Mm -hmm. I, I have come across people circulating job ads on Facebook, for mm. example. And so when the boundary between the professional and the personal gets fuzzy, then the professional links into the the social media that people have reserved for mm. per, the for the personal. Mm -hmm. Well what hap how did this happen? Like how did how did these companies come to be? How did we decide we needed to live in this kind of world? I mean Part of the problem throughout or trying to understand this as a, a neoliberal um, world we're living in and how these particular tools help us conform to that world or create us in that image, right? Where, where did we start realizing or feeling that we needed to live that way? I, I know there's a chicken and egg moment in here somewhere, right? Where you think the tool creates the user or the user creates the tool and there's no... There's no A and B and, you know, there's there's a, a confluence, I suppose. But is it just with computing techniques or, you know, where we're able to talk with people in a, in a different way, an email in particular, perhaps, you know, we start communicating differently and that walks us right into things like Facebook? I think actually that Facebook and LinkedIn are designed by people who buy into the neoliberal mm, okay. imagination. Okay. I think if you had... And, and and you can see it in part of the design features mm. within both Facebook and LinkedIn. So the fact that you have a quantified number of how many friends sure. you have yeah. and you know this immediately and you can think of your you can think of your network in terms of the numbers, mm -hmm. the, your Facebook network in terms of the numbers that you have and you can compete with other people about it is very much moving into a neoliberal logic applied to these kinds of metrics, mm -hmm. right? That it would be, it would have been easily possible for the designers not to let, ever let you know how many people mm. you are connected to. Right. And then people wouldn't compete over this. Sure. So there's a metric involved in, I mean, metrics are obviously the, one of the driving aspects of this, right? Well, well, the question is what you choose to measure, sure. right? Mm -hmm. So if you think that it's important to measure if, if you are imagining yourself as a bundle of relationships, then it might be useful to measure how many relationships you have. Mm -hmm. If you are thinking of yourself as a bundle of skills, then it might be useful to put the skills you have and that you are endorsed for mm -hmm. on your LinkedIn profile. And so you can have the kind of endorsements. But that too, I mean, LinkedIn did this in a ga very gamified way so that whenever you log on to LinkedIn, you're told, here are possible skills that people you know have. Will you endorse them for these skills? Right. I don't just, know about you, but I get endorsed for skills that I yeah, have no yeah. idea where you they're coming the button, from. You press the button and then you move right. in through, you know, right. keep pressing buttons right. and it is, a, it is a gamified sort of thing. It's time for a break. You're listening to Opportunities by the Pet Shop Boys. Tonight, our guest is Ilana Gershon, IU Associate Professor of Anthropology and author of Down and Out in the New Economy, How People Find or Don't Find Work Today. More interchange on WFHB after the break. I've had enough scheming of messing around with jerks. My car is parked outside. I'm afraid it doesn't work. I'm 
Back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight is the third episode of our series on neoliberalism. I'm speaking with Ilana Gershon on Selling Me, Incorporated. In our next segment, we return to questions of social media's place in our new employment landscape and how workers, as CEOs of their own little businesses, don't actually experience the freedom and equality that a transformation of traditional employment into a business-to-business contract supposedly creates. In fact, in the desperation one often experiences looking for work, job seekers feel compelled to use social media and networking whether they want to or not. Meanwhile, employers keep their de facto power since they ultimately make the decisions about who or which quote-unquote businesses they decide to employ. Ilana Gershon on Selling Me Incorporated on Interchange. I guess, you know, part of the difficulty in these conversations is that I, and maybe it's a simplicity of my own thinking, right? That I always want there to be a very clear, like I always want there to be a reason for it, you know, why we choose choose to do this. What's the end game for all of these things? And, uh, you know, obviously everybody has said to me, well, who knows, right? But is there some reason that this makes sense to people? I know we work, you know, we're within it, as you say. So you're asking not only why are people, I mean, people are designing these things according to a neoliberal logic because they believe in a neoliberal logic, because they think that the market is the best solution for how to order human interaction. Mm. Now, 
they happen to believe it. Why are they convincing all the rest of us to believe it? Mm -hmm. And so what really struck me about looking at hiring as a moment to start asking these questions is hiring is a moment where people are really anxious. Mm -hmm. They really would like to get a job. I have a lot of sympathy for people who would really like to get a job. And they are ready to take any advice that is given to them because they find this confusing. It's right. very hard to figure out how exactly to enter into a workplace. And mm. there are all sorts of reasons that it's difficult to figure out how to navigate getting hired. And this is a moment where people who are very well-meaning, I mean, I really respected the career counselors who I met a tremendous amount, needed to be able to give standardized advice because they weren't talking to people individually. They were creating large workshops and they were trying to create advice that people could use easily to understand how to apply for a range of jobs instead of thinking specifically doing long ethnography about that particular profession. Mm. And so they needed this standardized advice and the standardized advice turned out to really be very neoliberal now because that's the thing that people believe may actually work in the situation. And what I'm hoping by publishing this book is creating a space to maybe be a bit more critical about it, to say, well, is this advice actually working? And do we want to agree to this neo neoliberal advice instead of accepting it because we're anxious and we're worried and we don't know how to fix a problem that is really pressing and we need to solve? And if it's neoliberal or not, I don't think the people I interviewed cared very much. Right. They just wanted a job. Right, right. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that metaphor, too, because I, I, I didn't want to get lost. I mean, I'm, you know, this is always a weedy topic, right? Yeah, and and the metaphor is an interesting one because it's it just sort of sits in there and says, you're a business now. You now have to create a temporary relationship with a job. It's it's a struggle, you know, to think what that means other than the relationships are changing. Not that I'm necessarily changing as a worker. I have to do certain things still. Right. But what does it mean that the relationship is is changed. So the the organization no longer treats me a certain way. Yes. The organization says you're not a part of us. You're here for a little bit and gone. So who who is the us, right? Who is the business that will be around? You know, who who's working in the business, right, or in the corporation that gets to be long term? Is anybody is anybody around? Are there CEOs that are around? Are there you know vice presidents that get to be around? Who gets to be the us that I'm negotiating with if I'm if I'm a business that wants to be in a temporary relationship? I think it's a really interesting question. I think it because I am not a philosopher and because I'm not a social theorist. Um, in the way that some of the people you interviewed were, I'm really limited by what I can know by studying hiring. Mm -hmm. And what turns out to be really interesting is that this is exactly the kind of question I cannot know mm. by studying hiring, because what I was talking to were people constantly in transition. Right. They were the even, I, I mean, one of the things that I was really struck by is that I would go to workshops about how to be a good manager. And one of the stories that kept getting told over and over again is that a good manager will take a, a new employee to lunch the, in the first week or two weeks and say, 
I'm here for you and I know you're going to be getting a job somewhere else. So what I'm interested in doing is helping you get a job elsewhere as much as I can. So if I can help you learn new skills that will make you more marketable elsewhere, then that's what I will do for you. And I was really struck that what a good manager is now mm. is helping people leave the company, not stay in the company for as long as possible. That this is an understanding that everyone is now helping each other constantly circulate. Mm. So part of what I think is going on is the company is being stable in the same way that a person is trying to create a brand. It's all smoke and mirrors, and mm -hmm. the actual people who are there are not necessarily going to be that stably there. Right. So the question, the question we ask now, though, and and I think you you touch on it because you mentioned uh, a couple of programs for uh, blue collar workers, but we've talked about the gig economy. Uh, a lot uh, too, not here, of course, right. right now, but generally we're talking about the gig economy and the world of gigging, which would be like Uber and, right. and ways in which you, again, hire yourself out and your own assets, right. your car, your house, right. uh, and your property. Uh, you hire this out and it happens in a short time increment. You're paid for that little bit of thing you do. And in a sense, you know, isn't this what blue collar work of what uh, I don't even know what this is like it, um not like industrial manual labor but right. manual labor of you know carpentry and plumbing and right. you know where that's always a gig economy um if you're in a larger company that has constant work right then your employer you're employed and you're hired and and, and et cetera. but if you're not you know if you're kind of a yeoman i guess uh, right. you're always gigging to get another uh, electrician's job or you're always having to sell yourself basically so are we simply moving all work into a space where you're just you're just always having to move in and out of this this paid relationship it's not it's not a relationship per se, right? It's it's you give me right. money, I give you this, and I go right. away, and you go away, and we don't know right. each other anymore, and right. we don't care about each other anymore. Right. I mean, so I, what I think is really interesting about things like Uber and Amazon Mechanical Turk and TaskRabbit is that they're offering a different answer to the kind of age-old question that we have, which is, if we're really free people, why are we agreeing to have a boss? Mm. Like, sure. why in our lives are we always getting ourselves into contractual relationships in which we have a boss. And part of what these new platforms are suggesting is maybe we can find ways of organizing work so that there isn't a boss all the time, mm -hmm. right? So that these are just contracts. Now, there are a lot of downsides to sure. that, right? There, yeah. it's, it's very hard to retain a history and to know whether someone is a good worker or not, or a good employer or not, and going to be trustworthy and reliable. And so you have all these kind of new reputational mechanisms to deal with that. While if you were a blue collar worker earlier, you would have social reputational mechanisms right. for dealing with that, in which a lot of work happened through word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Tonight, our guest is Ilana Gershon, IU Associate Professor of Anthropology and author of Down and Out in the New Economy, part three of our series on neoliberalism. Well, it seems that the, the sort of problems that we're facing in that environment are 
are social problems, right? In the sense that they create a social environment, yeah. you know, that is no longer, and use the word stable earlier, and I was going to use the word protected at some right. point, right? So there is the idea that once you had an, an employer that, and this is, you know, watching Wonder Years on TV, you think of, you know, the dad having a, an employer that protected him. And this is the halcyon days of having union representation as well. And and the the industrial world where you had a job and you kept a job for life. So that created this sense of, of stability and protection. And it may be right, um, but the stability and protection of caring for the community that you've created, whether it be work, church, home, you know, we have these community places that we are supposed to care about each other in. Every single page of your book speaks to that not being a part of our lives anymore. Even as we network and, and create social networks, they're absolutely not caring networks. They're not invested in I don't. I don't know what more to say about. It. Like it's just. So I yeah. mean, th this is one of the things that really struck me was whenever anybody talked about networking, they really were longing for a particular kind of community. Often, and so people would often talk about there being a really strong ethics to networking, which is that you need to pay it forward, which is probably a phrase that people have heard often. Mm -hmm, sure. That you need to be. In a sense, casting your bread upon the water constantly and hoping that things will come back. What people were now talking about was not having these long histories of relationships in order to be able to find a job. And what also I found interesting was that this too seemed to be class specific in my fieldwork. So people who were talking about longing, trying to find weak ties, that were kind of very short-term ties where someone just happened to be kind. If you were squeezing a pepper near someone in a supermarket who was going to be nice to you and give you a job lead that was going to pan out. Right. Those kinds of accidental and right. lucky moments were the things that people who were kind of in mid-management were being constantly told to do and look for mm. and manage. But people who were looking at the sea level were being given advice about creating strong workplace ties and relying on these strong workplace ties that were then going to help them get the next job because people in the sea level were circulating so much mm. and were moving to so many different companies that they could bring in their friends with them. Mm. And so there was a real difference also in terms of thinking about what kind of networking is going to help and what kind of community are you working for and building for. And part of what really struck me was how much the language of networking was about luck and not necessarily having a strong community with the ways in which communities monitor each other's reputations. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there, there are pluses and minuses for living, sure. depending upon community. Sure, sure. If, if you're not a very reliable worker, you might want to live by luck. <laughs> right. Well, part of the the um, the thing that we will run into, I guess, is that uh, this is an uncertain, unstable, anxious worldview. Yes. That that's now the norm. Yes. And that these tools, LinkedIn, other types of tools, Facebook, um, are the ways in which you're supposed to be finding your next gig, next work, next community even. Yes. Um, but it's it's another thing that kind of strikes me as, you know, I'm trying to figure out what are we, I guess, are we the medium, right? Right. So this is the question, the medium or the, the medium is the message, right? right. So, so is this more true now than ever before? 
right? That um, within the Facebook, within LinkedIn, within the iPad and iPod and iPhone and whatnot, right? That this is all we are, you know? Well, I think we can go against it. Right. Okay. I mean, I think the design is urging us to move in particular directions. Sure. But humans rarely do what they are being told to do in design. And I think that there are ways in which we can create workarounds, we can use technology against what it is designed to do to really create different forms mm. and different ways of interacting. It sounds awfully optimistic. I, I, I <laughs> land on that side way too often. Well, it's good that somebody does. Uh, it's, dif- it's difficult for me to do it frequently. It's time for another break. You're listening to Busy Earn It by Jungle. More Selling Me Incorporated with Elana Gershon when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange. Tonight we're speaking with Alana Gershon, Associate Professor of Anthropology at IU and author of the forthcoming book, Down and Out in the New Economy, How People Find or Don't Find Work Today. In our last segment tonight, we see how the marketplace and technological logic of the new frenetic neoliberal employment model, Selling Me, Inc., in which everyone is an independent contractor constantly circulating through different temporary gigs, can destroy the boundary between work and life. We used to be able to go to a workplace for a third of the day, and while about one third of the day was for sleep, the remaining third was simply for being a person. No longer. Now that we're all businesses and never off the clock, even our free time must comport to our brand, or what our employers wish our brand to be. One thing that struck me too about this is that people seem to be um, thinking of themselves and being thought of as 
means, right? There's the, yes. the Kantian, uh, you know, immorality in a sense, right? These no one's thought of as an end in themselves. They're just constant little packages of means. And that's now the norm. And yes. everyone treats everybody else as a means. As we were talking about this, how do I network with you right. so you can give me another job or yes. give me a job at some point or somebody you know gives me a job somewhere right. else. And it seems to me we're smack dab in the middle of walking through the world as just a means to someone else's ends. Uh, this this goes against much of what we've tried to sort of create in a culture, a post-enlightenment culture or what, yes. you know. But I, I don't know how to work against it, right? So the question of how we work against all that is forming us now, because it's forming us. This is this is the thing that's constantly in my head, is it's creating us. So it's creating us, but I don't know that it's actually creating us in ways that work for us and work for other people. So that even if we're going to use the instrumental logic, mm -hmm. the instrumental logic undercuts itself when we are always dealing with everybody else's instrumental. Mm. Like the paths towards happiness and fulfillment, I think, are not getting worked out by living according to these particular right. market terms. And so I think that they're part of what people were really also trying to do was find f ways to create alternatives so that they could have stronger ties mm. with people. They were trying to imagine ways to do that. It wasn't always very successful because of what it means to be unemployed and trying to get a job because jobs end up often consuming all your time so that right. it becomes very difficult to sustain ties outside mm -hmm. of your right. jobs. But people were really anxious to try to find ways that long-term relationships, mm -hmm. long-term friendships could be carried forward and sustaining themselves through this very uncertain well, space. Undoubtedly, we still feel this way, many yes. of us, right? So we still feel empty when work gives us nothing to do, right? right. When you're when you're just not, and fulfilled is another one of those words that I'm not sure what it means, but when you're not engaged in the work you do, you feel like you're not, um, it just doesn't feel good, right? right. You're, it's a stressor in itself. You can have, you can feel worse for doing nothing than you have for doing too much. Um, stresses happen that way, right? So it's, it's a strange world to be in where it's clear most people seem a little unhappy about it, right? But but what's what's to do then, right? Like what's I guess this is always the question, right? This is this is an activist question, right? right. What's to do? But we run into uh, and and this was what I thought was interesting too. If corporations are people, yes, and people are businesses, yes. So no one's a person anymore except yes. for the corporation, but that's. All these are fictions in the fiction, first place, right? right. But, but people are now f being asked to be this fiction of a business, right? Yes. And so you you now are operating in a regulated space, if there are regulations that that serve you and not the corporation. And we talk about the ways in which maybe there's a good way to be uh, have a business-to-business -business relationship that is equal, right. or at least starts out in an equal space. But the clear message throughout is that it's not it's really not possible. You yes. ha you're, you're still needing the job. And you're yes. still employed. Right. Right. So you're still, you know, not an, on equal footing. Right. So the, the, again, I just, I, I want to find a way to say we need to stop doing the things we're doing. I don't see these, I guess I'm not the guy that sees the technological fix possible to the technological harms. You mentioned a couple of things in here about how to make hiring better. Uh, companies like uh, that 
the knack is one you mentioned in here. I don't know if that's making better, but yeah, uh, making hiring better, I suppose, or trying to. Um, no, you don't. You don't characterize them as being good or doing a better job of things in particular, but a way in which they're trying to make hiring. Well, work they're, better. they're trying to make hiring fit the neoliberal model better. Yes. This, so and, here, here's where we're a little handcuffed. Okay. Is because throughout, you don't say those. You don't say that word. Yes. And and but you want to say it. You do well, want to say it, right? You want to say it here too now, right? You want to say that. Well, you're just, allowing me to say it. I could find a way to, 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 to speak <laughs> without it. So what I say is, look, they're trying to get the model of the self as business yeah. to be more and more genuinely implicated in all the hiring processes that they feel that the problem with hiring is that it isn't living up to the self as business okay. enough mm -hmm. and that people are producing their own. NAC is a company that creates um, cognitive tests which function like video games yeah. so that you will play a video game and they will then tell you what your personal qualities are. It's kind of a psychometric. Uh, it is. A, yes, okay. very much mm -hmm. so. And what I'm suggesting is that this is a way to produce the qualities that you are then supposed to have as your authentic self right. for your personal brand that allows you to understand whether you are appropriate for a company or not. Right. Right. I'm I'm not advocating any of these no, things. What sure. I'm saying is that right. they're fitting into a particular logic about how we have to understand what it means to bring newcomers mm -hmm. into a community, which is what a workplace mm -hmm. is, in which they're trying to solve particular problems. How do you bring newcomers who won't upset the ways in which people are solving particular problems, but instead continuing mm -hmm. to allow the work to flow as best they can? And the problems that we have in hiring is that we use too many standard forms for this. We don't actually get a sense to know what someone, what a job applicant really is through the ways in which we're screening job applicants and asking them to represent themselves. Mm -hmm. mm. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Tonight, our guest is Ilana Gershon, IU Associate Professor of Anthropology and author of Down and Out in the New Economy. Part three of our series on neoliberalism. Unfortunately, there's a sort of sense of what, what these kinds of disciplines can be used for. And, I, and I'm going to quote from uh, a 1913, um, actually got it out of uh, Will Davies' book. It's uh, from John B. Watson. It's a, um, he was an animal psychologist in 1913. And then uh, I think 1915 became the American Psychological Association's president, right? Mm. If psychology would follow the plan, I suggest the educator, the physician, the jurist, and the businessman could utilize all our data in a practical way as soon as we are able experimentally to obtain them. Right. So there's a sense that I think we're all being co-opted right into and in disciplines in particular, psychology has obviously from the beginning, in some sense, been co-opted to being useful to the, the people who manipulate us. Right. Uh, this is my fear generally is that these are just more more ways to manipulate a life that can't form relationships, real relationships, long-term relationships. And that we, if we do that in a business environment, we do it and business is always on, then we're like that in our personal relationships too. Our home lives are like that as well because we're not off, right? All, all of us who are adults are on all the time. And so what kind of relationships are we having at home? What kind of relationships are we having with our spouse, with our children, with our, our friends, if they're not always, if they're being trained to be this way? through these, these tools, through these work environments, 
that are temporary. Everything's temporary and fragmented. That's my happy-go-lucky response. So, so I think many of us are unhappy about this. Right, I agree. And I think the question is, when and how are we penalizing other people for choosing not to act mm. in a way that is always on? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? I think that we part of what's going on in the always on and kind of preventing the work person and, and personal boundary from being in place is that we are in fact relying on our sense of obligation to other people and other people's sense of obligation to us. And we are asking them to enact it constantly as well. Hmm. So part, so if we are unhappy about this, we need to stop doing this to other people. Right. Well, I and, and I think yeah. that there's, at the micro interactions, that we are expecting other people to be able to respond quickly to us, mm -hmm. the ways in which our modes of communication are now becoming exasperated, that speed of reply is a sign of affection. Right. We can choose not to interpret the world this way, right. and we can choose to stop asking other people right. to uh, to behave accordingly and to support people when they choose not to do this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think even, even at these small levels, if we begin mm. to actively decide slow replies to text messages, Facebook, and email is actually a sign of careful, thoughtful love, mm -hmm. I think we will be able to create spaces in which Very we can good. start working on having yeah. long-term relationships. I like that. Right. Well, uh, part of the pressures that we're going to deal with uh, uh, constantly, though, is how our businesses, and we, you talk about this in the book, how our brands or our business idea of ourselves clash with the business we're trying to make a relationship with sometimes. So I, I have an, um, a nifty example of that too. Uh, the uh, MCCSC here, the school corporation here, has a, a, a support staff policy manual and it talks about outside activities. And it says that the school board directs the superintendent to promulgate the following guidelines. Um, and it's... Um, that support staff members may avoid situations in which their personal interests, activities, and associations may conflict with the interests of the corporation. And the last two of these are support staff members should avoid conduct and associations outside the school, which, if known, could have an adverse or harmful effect upon the school community. And E, support staff members should refrain from expressions that would disrupt harmony among their coworkers or interfere with the maintenance of discipline by school officials. That's our school corporation. Good ones. Mm. Yes. I mean, is harmony having different political beliefs or wanting transformation yes, in I think that'd be power relationships? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, disharmonious, fireable. So that's, that's problematic, obviously. Um, Just telling people not to have conflict has never been a particularly effective way to no, prevent conflict no, from happening. Of course not. The... Um, the neoliberal aspect that we want to try to understand here is a, is a person acting as a business. Yes. And that that's the primary concern of life in this sense, right? There's, I never get a sense that we move outside a neoliberal sphere that isn't all market and, and all engaged in this transactional space. That is only exchange or whatever we, what do we call this relationship, right? That it's all happening in that same space, which makes it not necessarily possible to call this work and home life. Or, you know, they, they seem to be collapsed 
now. Yeah, I think very they are much collapsed. So if if work is nowhere, uh, if if home is nowhere, you know, they, we have that we're everywhere. Work right. is everywhere. Home is nowhere. We've got a kind of utopian vision, right, of of this thing that we're creating, and you know, so where where do we live? You know, it's it's again trying to figure out how you define anything you do in life now. There, we've been. Cre- I keep I keep wanting to use the word created, right? So I wake up, I I get out of my bed, I ate breakfast, I go to work. Yes. Uh, I may have to take my kid to school. We have band practice. You know, right. things happen. Kids have their own created spaces that right. they have to work through too, right. and it takes up their time. And then there are days that are demarcated in certain ways. Lunch hour, you get off right. at five. Uh, your time discipline this way. And then where what's the time discipline anymore? Right. It's all the time. Right. Right. And your kids now are all the time in this space. They've yes. got their, their digital gadgets all the time on and they're learning neoliberal ways to be right. without knowing anything about what's happening. Right. Right. So I guess the question is, how do we in, how do we interject? You know, how do we how do we change? How do we it, it just seems like the machine rolls. How do we then be clear that this is a very neoliberal project? I think one of the things that I'm trying to do by being so focused on the very micro interactions that allow you to be, that are encouraging you to be neoliberal, mm-hmm. I'm also offering the possibility that it's actually in the micro interactions that we can say no to this. Mm, okay. I think part of what's interesting is that I'm writing for people who are not only going to be job seekers, but every job seeker that I spoke to was going to be hired. And in and then they were going to be hiring other people. Mm. And there are all these ways in which we are all involved in a process in which we are managing our workplaces according to this logic. Mm-hmm. And we do this without thinking about it, without being terribly critical about it right. necessarily because we're being very pragmatic. We have to get somebody new into the job as fast as possible. Here are the tools we know to to work with, and so we're going to do them. What I'm suggesting is maybe in these micro moments, we can start doing things in different ways. Mm. We can start thinking through what are the ways in which our micro interactions that have been based on neoliberal logics are giving us problems, mm-hmm. are not working well for us, and maybe trying to choose other strategies. Right. And these other strategies, will depend more on forms that older forms that we know work like community relationships mm-hmm. right we can have other ways of asking people to represent themselves as workers see what they're actually like to work with for a day or mm-hmm. two i mean there 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 are other options that right. you can have that are dependent like what options you choose are dependent on what is actually possible in your own workplace right. Right. and so i think it's i'm not I'm not giving overarching advice for how to get out of this, but what I am saying is if we're critical analysts of our own lives and think at this micro level about how we're constantly recreating this, mm-hmm. we can also choose to stop. Mm-hmm. That's that's me and my most optimistic. <laughs> That's it for Interchange. Tonight's show was the third in our series, The Way of Neoliberalism, Selling Me Incorporated. Our guest was Ilana Gershon, IU Associate Professor of Anthropology and author of the forthcoming Down and Out in the New Economy, How People Find or Don't Find Work Today, which will be out in March from the University of Chicago Press. 
You're listening to I've Been Working by Van Morrison. Next time on Interchange, part four of The Way of Neoliberalism, Selling Censorship. It's an election night special on free speech with guest David Bromwich, author of a recent essay in the London Review of Books called What Are We Allowed to Say? He'll be joining us in order to make it clear that free speech is an historical aberration. In most societies throughout history, censorship has been the means by which a ruling group or visible majority ensures that certain conventional practices will go on operating undisturbed. And free speech is by no means a default setting when it comes to individuals. Most of us actually self-censor, staying out of trouble by gagging ourselves. What in the world do we mean by the inalienable right of free speech if censorship seems to be the de facto human setting? Selling censorship, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer, and our executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. We'll be right back.